Welcome to the show, friends. Greg Kokel, the host of Stand to Reason, and I'm glad you're here with me today. I, uh, I have been working assiduously on uh, just about the last piece of the package for the new book, Street Smarts. Uh, whenever you write a book, at least nowadays, especially if it's instructional as opposed to like a, a fiction book or something like that, there's a lot of pieces to the package. First, you got to write the book. <laughs> You've got to come up with the manuscript, okay? Once you deliver the manuscript, okay, you, you get you get the rest of your advance, if there is one, because you've delivered a manuscript, but you're not done with it. Generally, if you have an advance, you get half at signing and half on delivery. <clears throat> and uh, But once you've delivered it, well, they've got something to say about how it's worded and how it's laid out and whatever, so they got an editor to go through and make some marks. And so then you got to kind of talk back and forth about those adjustments that they suggest. So that's a second time through the document. And then when you all agree on all of the wording of that document, then there's they do a galley proof. That means they lay it all out like it looks like a book, but eight and a half by 11 kind of sheets and comes in digital form. And then you've got to read the whole book again. In my case, that's 85,000 words. That's a lot of book. Story of Reality is only 55,000. I think the new tactics is around 75,000. This is 85,000. You got to read the whole thing again to make sure that he crossed every T and dotted every I. It's copy editing. But you're still not done because then they probably want instructional videos. So you have to write a script. Okay, then you got the script. Of course, in I mean, in my case, I write the script so I can read it on the teleprompter. And since I'm used to doing this kind of thing, I can read pretty well. <laughs> and uh, I write a script for readability. I got to write all those. And in this case, it was 10 sessions because it's a longer book. Oh, well, I'm not done yet. Uh, once I write the script, then I got to do the videos. So I go to a studio in Michigan and do all the videos two days. Oh, that's done. Well, wait a minute. Now you need a study guide. So then you transfer the script into a study guide format, and you rework it and everything, and then you finish the study guide. That's what I'm almost finished with. I got three more chapters, and uh, I'm due with the study guide April 15th, and I'm on schedule finally for once in my life. I'm on schedule <laughs> uh, to finish on time. And uh, then I'm not done, because then I have to read the whole thing again in front of the microphone over a couple of days so you can get the audible version. A lot of pieces to the package, but since I've been working so much on it, and uh, just uh, a couple of days ago finished the the chapter dealing with the problem of evil, which I title as The Atheist's uh, Fatal Flaw, or rather Atheism's fatal flaw. Because what I try to develop in that chapter, along with dialogues and questions, because that's the tactical angle, Street Smarts, subtitled, using questions to answer Christianity's toughest challenges. So we look at what the problems are, and then I offer you some questions to launch a sample dialogue to get you going. And then the dialogue there, which is the sample, has a couple of facets to it to give you an idea how this might play out in conversation so that the concept of the tactical approach to answering these kinds of challenges, in this case the problem of evil, begins to rub off on you. 
so it's more caught than taught. The first portion of the book of the chapters are the taught part, here's what's wrong with the challenge, and then the next portions have to do with the dialogical elements launched with certain questions that you use to move into the conversation, and hopefully as you kind of read through that and work with it a little bit, then you begin to internalize the method and get better at it. Anyway, so uh, in light of that, I, I thought I'd share a couple of thoughts that I develop in the book, and some of these things I've talked about before. But I, it, it is interesting to me that until recently, atheists have generally agreed that if there is no God, there is no real morality. And they've been happy to agree with that. And the reason they've been happy to agree with that is because if there is no God and there is no morality, then no one can hold them responsible to any transcendent moral code. Now, you could hold a person responsible to the law. Well, it ain't right or wrong. You can't make sense of that because there's no God, but there is the law that requires we live in a particular way for the sake of the well-being of others. Now, that's just a social contract kind of thing, and that's not real morality. Uh, That's not objective morality. That's just a subjective game we play. Um, And different cultures have different principles that they value and promote, and that's really what it amounts to, just just a cultural power game we play that uh, is meant for personal protection of some sort. I think it was uh, Hobbes, the philosopher, who said, life in an unregulated state of nature is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. (laughs) And uh, so therefore we kind of get our heads together and we say, okay, we're not going to, we're going to band together and make agreement to live a certain way. Of course, there's no transcendent obligation to keep the agreement. But it is a way of kind of organizing things. So, and atheists have been fine with that. They can get, they can do what they want in personal matters that don't relate to the law, and especially sexually. So, do whatever you want, and no God, nobody looking over my shoulder. Then that's fine with me. But times have changed, and uh, you might have seen the the billboard signs that have read "No God, no problem. Be good for goodness' sake." Or, are you good without God? Millions are. And their point is pretty clear that morality does not depend on belief in God. Atheists can be good, too. Which, by the way, as far as it's been said, I do agree with them. Morality does not depend on belief in God. All right? And here, I'm just going to make a distinction that maybe you haven't thought about, because this is the way the objection often comes up. There is a difference between saying morality doesn't depend on God and morality doesn't depend on belief in God. I agree with the second, but not the first. But that's the point being made here. The second, you can be good without a belief in God, all right? And uh, atheist Christopher Hitchens often challenged his religious opponents to name a single act of goodness that a theist could do that an atheist couldn't do. Now, notice he's focusing in on behaviors. He said, you can be kind to the poor. I can be kind to the poor. You're the theist, I'm the atheist. I don't need belief in God in order to be kind to the poor. Okay? You uh, want to, um, you know, love your spouse and be faithful? I can be 
love my spouse and be faithful. And I don't believe in God, so I can do the same behaviors that you can be. You can do, rather. <clears throat> All right, now, watch this. Careful theists do not claim that belief in God is necessary to do good, in other words, to replicate certain behaviors that those who do believe in God can do. Atheists, for the most part, there's an exception I'll offer in a moment, atheists can replicate the same behaviors that theists call good. What careful theists do claim is that God is necessary for any act to be good in the first place, and that without Him, true morality has no foundation at all. So the question is not whether believers and non-believers can perform the same behaviors. Of course they can. The question is whether any behavior can be good in a materialistic world bereft of God. Okay, now keep in mind, what's in question here is objective morality, transcendent morality, not subjective like, this is my world, this is my moral viewpoint, this is what's true for me. You don't need God to have something true for you. This is obvious. We're not claiming that God is necessary, belief in God is necessary, nothing's necessary but you to have your own moral standard for yourself. But the claim, in many cases, is has to do with the objective moral standard for the world. And by the way, that's the standard that must be in place for there to be a problem of evil. If there is no moral, objective moral standard, there cannot be a problem of evil. Just like if there are no speeding limits in an area, let's take uh, Germany's uh, Autobahn, you can't break the speed limit on the Autobahn. Why not? Because it doesn't exist. There are no speed limits. You can't break laws that don't exist. And in moral, in a relativistic morality, those laws in the transcendence sense don't exist, so you can't break them in the transcendent sense. You can only disobey whatever moral code you hold at the moment, but the Rx for that is just to change your code. <laughs> I guess it's okay for me to do that now, according to my morality, and you've solved that problem. You're not bad anymore, now you're good. Okay, so the whole issue here is whether there's objective moral standards that govern the world. And if if you don't believe in God, and there are objective moral standards, you can still do the good. But if there is no God, that is, if there are no moral standards, then not only can the atheist not do the good, because the good doesn't exist, but the theist can't do the good. Nobody can do the good or the bad, because there are no laws to either keep or break. And so I think the simplest illustration for this kind of thing is, is speed limits. I've already referred to that, but they're really handy. And in front of my house, they have a speed limit. I think it's 25 miles an hour, maybe 35. It's actually a little bit more frequently used thoroughfare in our community. Uh, and even though it's a side street and a residential area, the pe- people buzz by pretty quickly. And, uh, and so maybe it's 35 there, not 25. But in any event, people are going 45. All right. Um, now, here's the question. If, if the speed limit is 35, can they... Uh, uh, how do I want to put this? Um, 
and they go 45, are they breaking the law? Yes. So they're bad regarding that particular law. They're lawbreakers. Okay, well, what if what if there is no speed limit? Well, you can't break the limit that's not there, right? Okay, but what if, how, uh, how do you know what the speed limit is? Well, there's a sign. But it isn't the sign that gives the speed limit its authority. The sign just bears testimony to another authority that is in, invoking the speed limit on you and letting you know what that limit is by the sign. So the question is, who is that authority? Well, it's the city or the state government, whatever, that has put the sign out there. Now, what if I put a sign out there, I said 15 miles an hour? Well, we don't have to obey that. Why not? Well, because you're not a legitimate authority to tell us how fast we can go. The government is that. All right? Fine. Now, what if there is no government? Could you still go 35 miles an hour? Sure, you could do the behavior, but would it be law-abiding? Well, it can't be law-abiding if there is no law that says 35 is the limit. You can still do the behavior, but you can't obey the law, because there's no law to obey. And this is the problem of a person says he could be good for goodness' sake, with no God. Because there is no goodness' sake if there is no lawmaker to establish the law that you are trying to obey without him. You could do whatever you wanted and call it good, that's relativism, but somebody else who has a totally different definition of the good could do that too and be just as good according to their principles as you are according to yours, even though their principles might be morally exactly opposite of yours. All right? The, the point simply is that if you are thoughtful and careful uh, about how this whole project works, morality, you'll realize that morality is more than just a behavior. It is the behavior that's moral because of some other thing. And if there isn't that other thing, like a code of some sort or a law of some sort, then the behavior you're performing is still the behavior, but it isn't good or bad. Just like going 35 miles an hour on a street that has no speed limits. You can still do the behavior, but you're not law-abiding because there's no law. And this is why atheists who bring this particular point up miss the point entirely. It isn't, it isn't belief in God that makes the difference to the morality of the behavior. It is God who makes the difference, and if there is no God, theists and atheists can still do the same behaviors, but they're not going to be good for either of them because there's no standard by which to measure the good. And uh, the illustration I use is writers and readers. I want you to think about that relationship. So if I handed a copy of Mark Twain's um, Tom Sawyer to you, could you read it? Of course you could. But what if I? But if you said to me, though, well, Mark Twain never existed. In, in fact, what if you said you didn't believe any writer existed? If you didn't believe in writers, could you still read Mark Twain? 
if I handed a copy to you? Sure. You, you could still do the behavior. But if you were right that there were no writers, there'd be nothing to read in the first place. The fact that you have a book to read is evidence that there was a writer who wrote it. And the fact that you have a moral law to keep is evidence that there, so that you could be good if you do it, is evidence that there was someone who made the moral law. I like this illustration about writers and readers. I think it's right to the point. Because readers who deny authors sound silly. Now, nobody would do that. But I just want you to see the relationship and the parallel here. Um, sure, they wouldn't need to believe in authors to be good readers. They could challenge you to show them one article you could read as a believer in writers that they couldn't read as unbelievers in writers, and you'd be hard-pressed, right? Yet their retort would not rescue them from their foolishness. Why? Because articles are, by nature, the kinds of things that require authors. And, by parallel, morals are, by nature, objective morals now, are, by nature, the kind of thing that requires a moral author. Laws require lawmakers, and it's the lawmaker that creates the incumbency of the responsibility and also can follow through with punishment for disobedience. Um, just in closing here, uh, Hitchens is wrong on another point, by the way, and I, uh, the, and I hinted at this. Um, as an atheist, he actually can't do all the good things a theist can do. Now, I heard someone quip, yeah, he can't tithe. Ha, 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 everybody laughed. Well, he can tithe. He could tithe to a church. He could do that. He'd be unlikely that he would, but he still could do the behavior, and giving to a church is considered good by Christians. So he could do it. But there is one thing he could never do. He could never do the greatest good according to theists, especially to Christians. He can never love God with his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. He could love his neighbor as himself. He could do that. He can never love God. That's the first commandment. According to Jesus, that's the greatest good. He cannot worship the one from whom all goodness flows. Now, Hitchens, of course, would likely sniff at that point, but we mustn't miss the deeper implications, regardless of who is right on the God question. And I'm not settling that here. I'm just looking at the natural impl implications of the different options. Regardless of who is right on the God question, the entire moral project is altered significantly when you add God to the equation. Simply put, the atheist and the theist do not share the same morality. Incidentally, Hitchens, he's dead now. He died six, seven years ago. But he, he used this challenge on everybody he ran into. And I can't—it's—one it's, of two things happen, and both of them are odd. Either um, no one ever offered this reflection to him. Here's what you can't do. You can't love God, and that's the greatest good. You can't love him with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the end of that objection. Okay. So he can't do that. It's not the same morality. Now, either they, 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 they didn't say that to him, 
which is amazing to me that nobody would have confronted him on that. And he he debated a lot of people, people I know. <laughs> Maybe it didn't come up during the debate. Maybe they did answer. But if they did answer, then then Hitchens has a counterexample to his challenge. And therefore, he would give up the challenge. He's a smart guy and... and uh, and you know, reasonably honorable. I'd, I suspect with some of these things, and why why wouldn't why wouldn't he say, oh, okay, that's a good point. I can't offer that. That challenge has been answered. But because he did it all the time, either someone didn't answer it for him, which blows my mind, or or he heard it and he didn't take it into consideration, which also blows my mind. So go figure, right? Okay, let's go to break, and we'll get back to your calls when I return on Stand the Reason. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic, and subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org donate. All right. It's my tune. Greg Kokel here, your host giving you a piece of my mind, as I do uh, regularly on uh, Tuesday afternoons from 4 until 6 p.m. Los Angeles time, my number 855-243-9975. If you're outside of the U.S., you can dial up 562-424-8229. Let's go to Somerville, South Carolina, and that would be number two, and Hunter. Hello, Hunter. Hey, Greg, how's it going? Okay, I think I know somebody in Somerville, South Carolina. Not sure. Really? Yeah. Um, his name is... Uh... <laughs> Gosh. 
I'm drawing a crazy blank because he's my brother-in-law, and I'm just so ashamed that I can't think of his name. His last, last name is Melberg, and uh, Glenn, Glenn Melberg. Okay, so you probably don't know him, but in any event, I think he lives in Somerville, but I could be mistaken. He's somewhere in South Carolina. Anyway, sorry, Glenn, if you're listening in. I just had, like, one of those senior moments. So what's on your mind, Hunter? Well, I'll give you a bit of background information. There, I saw some Mormon missionaries in my neighborhood, and they were uh, witnessing to my neighbors. So I went over and introduced myself and invited them over to my house for dinner a few uh-huh. weeks ago. And I brought up some troubling verses that they have that con- you know contradict with the Bible. And I asked them, you know, well, how do we, how do we get saved? And then we talked about uh, whether or not works are involved. And then they shared their testimony, and we started getting into how do you know that the Book of Mormon is true? Mm-hmm. And that's when one of the ladies shared her testimony with me about how she prayed, and uh, Heavenly Father revealed it to her. And they had to leave after that, and they came back to my outpost meeting the next week, and we talked some more about how to interpret Scripture. And they're coming back tomorrow night, and I think we're just going to pick up our conversation about how do they know that the Book of Mormon is true, and I'm going to respond to a few comments they made uh, about uh, salvation that comes after the works. And I was wondering if you had any advice hmm. on how to kind of navigate those those questions, and also maybe any uh, reading material or podcast or something I could look into to kind of prepare myself for the, those Okay, yeah, the, uh, good questions, and uh, I do have some thoughts about this, but I, I'm not the person who talks a lot with LDS and uh, really study their stuff in depth. I don't think you need to know that in-depth stuff in order to be able to respond uh, to the concerns that you've raised. Amy actually is much more versatile there, and <clears throat> we had a STR ask not too long ago where Amy made reference to a website or publication or something that showed all of the things in the Book of Mormon that were actually contrary to Mormonism or something to that effect. Is that right, Amy? And uh, so Mormonism Research Ministries, Mormonism Research Ministries. And so that was one thing. So if they're looking at the Book of Mormon, say, wait, the Book of Mormon says this. And then it says this, and and this is not consistent with Mormonism. Now I can't remember the details, but that's one one thing that you could you could bring up, and especially if you have the material, then you say, yeah. okay, I, I'm 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 interested in talking about the Book of Mormon, but the Book of Mormon says this about whatever. And again, I, I I'm not recalling the thing here, but Amy read it off during the 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 podcast and it may be that you can access Amy is it can they add cast uh, <laughs> can Hunter um, access the podcast by a search she says she'll try to find it okay so uh, might be posted when this gets posted later this week but um, um, so so that's one thing. I'm going to give you a couple of things. I'm going to throw out a couple of things for you, and then you could think about how you might want to weave them together. Yeah. The the Book of Mormon is not the problem, because the Book of Mormon is not doctrinal. 
for the most part. It, it has doctrinal elements in it, but it isn't the 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 didactic teaching of the doctrine of the Mormon Church, where the doctrine and covenants, or the Pearl of Great Price, or some other of the writings of Joseph Smith, that would be the the locus for the doctrine. So, in a certain sense, the Book of Mormon is principally about an historical account of Jesus allegedly visiting the U.S. I wouldn't be asking uh, whether the Book of Mormon is inspired. What prayer should I pray to find out whether the Doctrine of Covenants is inspired by God, or the Pearl mm. of Great Price? Because that's, those are the books that, um, that, that entail doctrine. And to me, it's a little bit of a, you know, a bait-and-switch. And that is, here, pray to see if the Book of Mormon this historical account of Jesus visiting the people here in the American continent, if if you believe that the Holy Spirit gives you a witness that it's true. And then if you feel that, all the rest of the books compiled on and they get added in. Yeah. Just part of the package, okay? So so that that to me is troublesome. Um and so you might raise a question about that. But the website that I just mentioned that Amy had um had used some material from, that website um, that material is also helpful to say, oh, Book of Mormon. So this is of God, and this is important. God ordained. Okay, well, I'm curious then, what about this passage that seems to inveigh against current Mormon teaching? I think that's the way mm-hmm. to express See what they have to say. Now, all you're doing is asking questions, and yeah. you're trying to put a stone in their shoe, a stone of doubt about their own, uh, their, their, their own books. Wait a minute, if this is a book of God, blah, 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 then why is it contradict? And then why didn't you ask me about Pearl of Great Price and Doctrine of Covenants? Okay, uh, but there's, there is a—I have a passage I just wanted to mention to you from Deuteronomy. So you would ask him, so do you believe that the Bible is inspired by God, It's an authoritative book? Their answer is, is yes. They, I think they tend to use the King James Bible— which is a little unfortunate because it's harder to read that older English, but nevertheless, it's still, if you if you kind of do the translation from the older English into modern English, you're okay if you can do that. It's like reading Shakespeare. But um, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13, the first two verses, there's an important, or the first three, there's an important statement. And so I'm going to read it to you, and right. this this is something that you might be able to use. If I found the right verse, I had to do a quick search, you know, as I was during the break, but I think this is it. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, and then I'm going to pause for a moment. Notice that here is a prophet or dreamer of dreams that prophesies and dreams a dream, something supernatural that actually comes true. So you have a supernatural manifestation here. It's just acknowledged so far in the text. Okay, and so by parallel, and if you're going to read this to them, just stop them at this point. By parallel, um, the appeal to God to give a witness about the Book of Mormon is an appeal that God do something supernatural in our body. Is that is that a fair way of characterizing it, I would say, to the Mormon missionary? Yes, it is. All right. Now— Moses qualifies that circumstance in what follows. 
So picking up verse 2, And the sign of wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. All right. In other words, they do a sign or a wonder, but they are directing them to follow a different religious view. Mm -hmm. The sign or wonder is meant to verify a different religious view than what these have received, the, the Jews in this case. Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Yeah. All right, you shall not listen. So here's the here's the um, here's the, um, the the um, the 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 standard, if you will. I'm trying to think of the right word to describe it. Here's the standard: if God already weighs in on a truth about Him, and someone else, even in a dramatic supernatural way, teaches something contrary to it, you're not to listen to Him. Okay. So that's the verse. But I actually have an illustration that you can use with your two Mormon missionary friends that um, it's also a, a question that might be better um, to use first. And here's the question. All right. Um, let's just say—so I'm role-playing here—let's uh, just say Tom and Jerry. Okay, these are the two missionary guys. Okay, hey, Tom, let's just say that Jerry comes up to you. And he says, you know, Tom, I just moved into the neighborhood, and there is a really, really pretty woman who lives next door. Now, I'm married, and she's married, but I prayed about it. And God has given me a burning in my bosom about going after this girl. Now, I know that sounds ludicrous, but what, what would, Tom, you say to Jerry if Jerry were to say that to you? Now, I suspect he would say, wait a minute, we know that adultery is wrong. God has already yeah. revealed that, right? Okay, you see where I'm going here. We, God's already revealed that adultery is wrong. And so now uh, you're saying you have a burning in the bosom. It doesn't matter if your bur bosom burns. Because if it's burning to tell you to do something contrary to what God has already revealed, then it's wrong. Okay, so you want to get that that straight-up, common-sense um, method in place. You know, they're telling you, here's how you know whether something new is true. Okay, great, I agree with you. That would be wrong. What God reals, reveals first is always the standard of anything that somebody thinks he's revealing second. Okay, then you can go, and by the way, Moses said this exact thing. And then you come back to Deuteronomy 13. Yeah. If the prophet or dreamer of dreams says this and then preaches you another God, don't listen to him. So he agrees with what you just said. Now, here's the question for you and I regarding the question of Mormonism and Christianity. What has God already revealed that is true, that is inconsistent with Mormonism? Now, to me, the obvious one is um, is uh, monotheism versus polytheism. Yeah. Okay, Isaiah 6, the Lord God is one, right? The Shema. It's one God. Okay, now, does, does 
Mormonism teach one God or many gods, multiple gods. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're separate. Yes, they're separate in Mormonism. They're distinct. Yes, they're distinct. And are they gods? Yes, they're gods. So you have three gods. So you're teaching a system with three gods, at least. But what has already been revealed is one God. It's right there in Deuteronomy. I am the Lord your God. Don't have any other strange gods before me. That's right there in Deuteronomy. So, okay, tell me, help me to understand how does this work. So you're just going to lay that out there, and please help me to understand. Okay. Okay. So, uh, and by the way, Amy is linking the article I was just referring to in the podcast notes. So when you get the podcast of our conversation, that'll be in the podcast notes, and that will be helpful. But um, there's a couple of things that you might think about when you're talking with the Mormon missionaries. And um, be nice, as I'm sure you will be, but ask these questions that raise issues for them. And the whole idea is to plant a seed of doubt. What must I do to be saved? That's a question that the Philippian jailer asked in Acts chapter 16. Paul gave one answer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not Jesus plus it's Jesus only. Yeah. Alone. Yeah, and that was the issue I was running into them with where I quoted Galatians, where Paul, you know, was calling out the church in Galatians for following another gospel um, and his reprimand of them. And I asked kind of how how they saw that as if they were teaching a different gospel. And they they, they claimed that they also believe in grace alone. But okay. they think that it's grace. The grace comes after you do the works. <laughs> and the illustration I'm they sorry gave for laughing. Me was that if you like, say they said, imagine a little girl and she wants to buy a bicycle, but she doesn't have enough money. So she goes to her dad, and her dad says, "Okay, well, what do you have?" And she says, "I have three pennies." So he takes her three pennies, then goes and buys the bike. He's like, "Hey, here's your gift." And you know, that they say the pennies are what we can give, and we could never earn the bike on our own, but we contribute, and then God fills in the rest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the issue I have with that is that we don't even have the pennies. We, we right. don't have anything to bring. Right. And, uh, and I think going to Romans 4, but, you know, makes it clear there, for the one who works, it is reckoned to him as righteousness, but for the one who does not work but believes in a God who justifies the ungodly, to him it's reckoned as, uh, or I'm sorry, it's, it's reckoned as what is due if you're doing it, but it's reckoned mm-hmm. as righteousness by faith if, if it's God who does it. And by the way, the illustration, thanks for the illustration, but the illustration is not, in a sense, probative. It doesn't add any evidence, and people take it that way. Well, that's a good illustration. All an illustration is is a sophisticated or colorful assertion. The question is, is this what the Bible teaches? Does the Bible teach whatever we have, and then God gives the rest? Okay, is that what it teaches? And so, what? but in their doctrine, I know this, and they could, they'll tell you this. We work, 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 work. Mm-hmm. And then when we've done everything we can, we qualify for the rest. But if they're not working, they don't qualify for the rest. You yeah. know, they're not going to get whatever. It's, it's you got to put that down. The free gift of God is eternal life. It's the entire thing. You don't pay four cents. Your point was good. 
We don't have four pennies that count towards our salvation. And uh, and this is something to, just to, you, I think, in a certain sense, you don't even have to argue with them about it. You can talk about it from the Scripture, but you say, listen, friends, salvation is a gift of God. You're going to work your whole life trying to measure up. You're already trying to do it. Guess what? You do not measure up. And I suspect in your private moments, you know that. This is why Jesus says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. They're laboring to keep the law. They are laboring to get themselves saved. And Jesus is saying, I will give you rest from that labor. And by going back to these texts that are powerful for the grace of God, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, the very first verses that I recall remembering. I didn't try to memorize it. They just stuck. By grace you were saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It, it, it's not even partially of yourselves. It's just not of yourselves. Yeah. Not of works that is of any sort. There's no four pennies in there. So the illustration that they give, clever as it is, does not capture what the Bible teaches. Okay? So uh, th- that's the key one here. Does that capture what the Bible's actually teaching? I get your illustration. Is that what the Bible says? And I'd, I'd be armed with a number of these passages, like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, uh, Romans chapter 4, um, Acts chapter 16. Now, a little bit of the difficulty, uh, there are we're told to do things in different places. And mm-hmm. what they do is they take these as requirements for salvation. And where I take them as evidence of salvation. Okay, yeah. but that's the only way to take them that's consistent with these powerful passages that say, believe, receive, or whatever, you know, that uh, faith comes through—I'm sorry, but uh, salvation comes through faith. By grace you're saved through faith, not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works. And, well, thank uh, you, Greg. I really appreciate the uh, that help there. I'll definitely come up with keep keep those questions in mind and get a good list of Bible verses for our talk tomorrow. All right, Hunter. Uh, good for you. And get prayed up. And um, I would. Uh, do you, uh, are you married with family? I have a wife, and we have a little boy on the way. Oh, I see. Okay, one in the oven, so to speak. Well, I'm sure your <laughs> wife will be there, and she could be yeah. paying for you while you're talking, so that's good. But, uh, get you know, in a few weeks or whatever, uh, when you got a story to tell how things went, I'd be curious to find out one way or another. Maybe they go well, maybe they don't go well. It's all right. I would like to hear back on how that went. Well, I, I'll be at the um, reality conference in North Augusta. Oh, okay, great. So That'll be in about maybe four we weeks. can uh, catch up then. All right, <laughs> sounds good. And you're going to have to remind me of the <laughs> of our conversation, okay? All right. Thank Will you, do. Hunter. Thank you. All right. All God's best to you. Um, well, wow, that's cool. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm interested to see how things are going to turn out tomorrow. Uh, let's go to a break, and then we'll go to Huntington, Indiana, and Ramey after I return. You can take Stand to Reason with you through our mobile apps, available for free from the App Store or the Google Play Store. The Quick Reference app gives you short, easily accessible courses on our most popular topics like tactics, homosexuality in the Bible, morality, the story of reality, and many more. 
The Stand to Reason app has all our latest content available at your fingertips. You can listen to our podcasts, check the blog, and access timely and practical resources. They're free, so download the apps today on the App Store or the Google Play Store and start carrying Stand to Reason with you everywhere you go. If you enjoy our apps, you can help other people find them by rating them on the App Store or the Google Play Store. Do you want to become a more knowledgeable Christian ambassador without sitting through a formal course on apologetics? Well, we've made that possible for you through our STR Quick Reference app. Available for free on iTunes and Google Play, the STR Quick Reference app holds a wealth of information summarizing what you need to know on a range of topics. Learn how to defend the faith, see how other worldviews compare to Christianity, and master the biblical view of morality all through short, engaging videos. Before you know it, you'll be well-versed on a number of important apologetics topics. In addition, the Quick Reference app also includes a Bible with text and audio, as well as some featured STR resources, all to enhance your learning experience. The STR Quick Reference app will equip you to engage in thoughtful conversation about the key issues of life from a classical Christian perspective. Visit iTunes or the Google Play Store today and download the STR Quick Reference app. And if you enjoy the app, make sure you give it a five-star review. All right, just a reminder, uh, Reality Apologetics coming up April 21st and 22nd in Augusta, Georgia, and that's our last caller, uh, was just Hunter was referring to that. I'll see him there. I hope to see you there, too. Um, and uh, lots of room left, but it's good to get in soon. We have sold out every other reality, and actually there was a few seats left in Minneapolis because the auditorium holds over 4,000, and uh, we had about 3,800. And, but the problem is we didn't have we did not have rooms large enough for the breakout sessions for all those people. So we were at, we were maxed out, and we did the same thing last weekend in uh, where were we Philly, and uh, the month before in Dallas. So um, this is your last shot to get this year's series of uh, of realities. Go to realityapologetics.com for all the information. Also, remember, this weekend, Alan and Tim will be speaking in Canada, Ontario, in Barrie. That's B-A-R-R-I-E, March 31st through April 1st. It's the Equip Youth Conference, Friday, Saturday. All right. Alan will also be speaking later on in the month, April 14 and 15, in uh, Redeemer Bible Church, Spotsylvania, Virginia. And that's a Friday, Saturday, 14, 15 April. Tim Barnett then will be at Mount Airy Church in Mount Airy, Maryland, on Saturday and Sunday, April 29 and 30, and Calvary Chapel, Olympia, Washington, Wednesday, May 3rd. All right. And let's go to Ramey in Huntington. Hello, Ramey. Hello, Greg. It's good to hear from you. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Do Have we met before? We have. Um, you, you used to live in uh, North Dakota, right? Well, Minnesota, actually. Oh, Minnesota. Okay, brother, well, close enough. My brother lives in North Dakota. So we've met, and uh, you got a whole family of folk that are standard reason people, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I told Amy 
She said, remember, Ramey, R-A-Y-M-I-E, is a guy, not a gal. And I said, I know a Ramey, so I know that much. I wonder if it's the same Ramey, and it is. Nice to hear from you, Ramey. Yeah, Yeah, thanks. Well, my wife and I are strategic partners, and we've supported Stand Reason for a while. And uh, I'm also an outpost director at our church here in Indiana. Well, that's great. That's fabulous. from that, and actually prior to that, I've, I've been leading a discussion uh, for our college-age ministry at church, and so it's been great to be able to use some of those materials from STRU. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's great. That's kind of where I, where I wanted to go with this. Uh-huh. Uh, we had some discussions. We, we have a weekly discussion over our lunch uh, with our college students uh, on Sundays. And uh, we just started this, the Ambassador Series that you teach. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Huh? Was that yeah. the Ambassador um, from a long time ago, or are you using it now? We're using the one from SDRU, those videos. Right. Oh, I got you. Okay. Um, so we talked about the idea, of just kind of introducing the idea of being having an attractive manner as ambassadors when right. they engage with non-Christians. Right. And uh, coincidentally, I also had just heard a podcast uh, w- with uh, your associates, uh, Robbie and John and mm-hmm. Amy and Tim, where they were giving advice to apologists uh-huh. um, while you were gone. And uh, the idea came up as they were discussing this about uh, how we should avoid going down the road of being rude and insulting because people who are in opposition to Christianity sometimes behave that way in their, in their manners. And so we should not try to respond, or we should try not to respond in kind. Right. Um, and Tim especially was weighed in on how difficult it is sometimes to resist that temptation when you're <laughs> watching all these videos about right, atheists right. on Red Pen Logic. So, well, he's gotten a lot better. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, anyway... One of my students, one of the students in our group, who was a young woman, pretty quiet-natured, stayed behind afterwards and asked me this question. When is it appropriate, if ever, for a Christian to be rude or maybe forceful? And I'm kind of paraphrasing her here. Uh When responding to people who are speaking in opposition to Christianity. And she she had in mind, and I kind of think then came to my mind, of when Jesus was really kind of forceful in uh, turning over the tables of the money changers right. in the temple and ha- expressing zeal for God's house. So how would you answer her question? Well, I guess I'd have to say that there is a place for that uh, insofar as Jesus was pretty aggressive in some circumstances. Now, keep in mind, though, that when Jesus overturned the money tables in the temple, all right, um, the question he was asked is, by what authority do you do this? And he says, here's the sign I will give you. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. And the text then says, this he was speaking with regards to his body. So it was a veiled reference to the resurrection, which resurrection sealed his authority as Messiah and Son of God, declared with power to be the Son of God through the resurrection. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 2 or 3, something like that. So, arguably, the incident at the temple when he overturned the tables 
was something that he did in virtue of his authority as the divine Son of God and the anointed Messiah. Okay? And he was going to verify that authority through his own resurrection, which he did. Okay? So it, it, it it would be a little bit awkward to try to take that as an example that we should be doing the same thing, because that looks like it may be uh, a unique circumstance. Now, the question, the way you put it, though, uh, when is it appropriate for a Christian to be forceful or rude? I think it's uh, it's it, there's not a problem with a Christian being forceful. It kind of depends, of, of course, what you mean by that, but um, I think that it's entirely appropriate to be confident and direct and speak the truth in a straightforward fashion, and a call sin, sin, and speak with clarity and conviction. This Jesus did also. And he, what, that clarity and conviction, I what, don't think was tied to his office. In other words, if, you're, if you don't have his office, you can't speak with clarity and conviction. He was able to do that in virtue of the fact that he was the authority to speak. But, but uh, Peter spoke with authority, and Paul spoke with authority in the circumstances that they had to speak. In fact, Peter's sermon, if you look at Acts chapter 4, he was pretty direct. There is salvation in none other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And you have to decide whether it's right for us to obey God rather than man, but we cannot stop speaking that which we've seen and heard. Well, pretty direct, Right especially yeah. speaking to the leadership. So I think that it certainly is appropriate, and it's not untoward at all, to speak direct when the circumstance warrants it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and when I was, when uh, I closed the uh, reality this last weekend in Philly, and I took the last eight minutes or so on the big stage and spoke to the audience, and first spoke to the Christians, and then I spoke to the non-Christians. And what I said, there's another group of you who are here, and you're not sure why you're here. But I'll tell you one thing, you're not here by accident. Maybe you're a tire kicker, maybe somebody dragged you here, but I want you to think about yourself for a minute. I want you to look down inside yourself and think about that, because I know that when you look down, I know something true about you, you don't know that I know about you. When you look down inside of yourself with a candid eye and an honest eye, you realize you see things you do not like. There's darkness down there. How do I know that? Because that's true of all of us. And when you think about that and contemplate the darkness within you, you have a feeling about it, and the feeling has a word uh, to describe it in English, and that word is guilt. You feel guilty. Now, here's my question. Why? Why do you feel guilty? Maybe, I don't know, maybe you feel guilty because you are guilty. And the answer to guilt is not denial. No, no, not me. The answer to guilt is forgiveness. And this, I said, is where Jesus comes in. Because one day you will stand before Jesus himself, and one of two things is going to happen in that last final judgment where your life is spread out before God and everyone else watching. Either perfect justice or perfect mercy. Perfect justice is punishment for everything you've ever done wrong, and God misses nothing. Perfect mercy is forgiveness for everything you've ever done wrong, and God misses nothing. And since you know you're guilty, I suggest right now or tonight at your hotel room or at your home, you take a knee and you beat your breast and you say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, forgive me, a sinner. 
and then put your life in his hands and get up and follow him. Now, that's that my gospel presentation. What does that take? About three minutes, I, I'd imagine, here. Mm-hmm. And that that's pretty direct, I would say. Mm-hmm. Pretty straightforward, no nonsense. There's nothing rude about it. I, I, being rude, that's another thing. And, and Jesus was rude, it seems, a couple of times. When, the, when uh, some people said, you've offended us. You've offended those people. And, okay, well, I got something to say for you, scribes. He take this, you scribes and you Pharisees. And so then he just kept going. So he did not mind speaking the truth in a way that offended them. But it was the truth that offended. I don't think it was the way that he spoke the truth that offended. And see, that's the standard for us. The truth has got to offend, not the way we say it. But we're speaking the truth nobly and graciously, and I guess that's the way I would put it. That would be my answer to her, Ramey, and uh, that's our standard, you know, for for us too. So, I'm I'm just ticking out. I got three seconds to go, but I just want you to know it's nice to hear from you, and maybe I'll see it again before too long. Okay, buddy. Hope so. Thanks. Okay, Ramey, say hi to the whole family for me. I will. All right. Bye, Greg. Bye, bye. All right, friends. That's it. Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.